Welcome, everyone, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. All right, you guys. Thank you, thank you. <clears throat> Welcome. And good morning. It's an early one again. And a solo show today, you guys. You're getting Chris and only Chris. Um, don't know how I feel about that. Uh, hopefully good. But uh, so I'm a little nervous today because, um, you know, I'm doing a solo, uh, which which is nerve-wracking anyway. But this one I'm doing on uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson. This is, this is my Maps of Meaning episode. And... Um, Truthfully, this can't be done in one episode. It's going to be something that will probably be a series, I'm guessing. And um, um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how many of these. Uh, but I think what I'll do is I'll, I'm not going to release them back to back because maybe I'll uh, release one here and there. Um, and just let them build on each other. I do want to mention anybody who, um, anybody who isn't interested in reading the book, Maps of Meaning, if, if any of this stuff is interesting to you. Um, Jordan Peterson's podcast has Maps of Meaning lectures, so you can go and listen to them. Uh, season 1, Episode 9, uh, Episode 10, and Episode 12, and 13. So all of those are Maps of Meaning lectures. And in fact, if you go all the way back to the beginning, Episode 1, Episode 2, Episode 3, Episode 5, all of those are kind of right up the alley. In fact, episode six for that matter. So if you just want to start from the beginning and start listening, you're going to get a really good idea. But if you want to do Strictly Maps of Meaning, which is the, the book that Jordan Peterson published, his first book, the one that uh, he teaches or he taught when he was teaching in uh, Canada, a course called Maps of Meaning. Uh, so if you're interested in it, um, you know, you can YouTube it. Uh, you can go to the uh, podcast and check out, start with, starting with episode nine, you'll be able to see that stuff. You can listen to it your, yourself if you want to. Uh, what I did, though, is uh, just went back through the book a little bit, and uh, I, what I want to do today is just give you an introduction. So maybe, uh, maybe Matt, this one's for you, buddy. Um, I'm just trying to let everybody know who Jordan Peterson is, because Kyle and I will not shut the fuck up about the guy. Um, you know, I've been, I've been pretty well steeped in him for a few years now, so uh, you know, I'm getting to the point where I feel like I've absorbed absorbed uh, you know a, a lot of the important information from him so maybe maybe we can kind of get off into some other other folks uh, a little bit more deeply but he, I don't think Jordan Peterson is going away so um, all right so I found out about Jordan Peterson on the Joe Rogan podcast which many many people did because prior to that he was um, you know he's a college professor in Canada uh, teaching psychology you know, uh, you know, he did have a YouTube presence early on and was doing videos and stuff online and had kind of a lot of a lot of people following him. But honestly, I mean, you know, public appeal for 
psychology and uh, like academic stuff, it's not very high. So he, the point is, he didn't have much of a fingerprint, um, you know, outside of uh, those kind of social media circles that he was running in, kind of highly academic stuff. Um, but then he gets then he gets himself in trouble, um, and that's how he ends up on Joe Rogan, and the rest is history. So for those for those of you who don't know, a few years back there was a legislation in Canada called Bill C-16. The, the legislation, uh, to the best of my uh, recollection, was to do with um, to do with sort of PC language, you might say. So they, they wanted, in this case specifically, um, to make a law that said if you were transgender um, and you had preferences in terms of your pronouns, that it would become against the law for somebody to not use those preferred pronouns. So, so again, in the in the spirit of sort of, you know, goodwill, you know, neighborly goodwill, the good folks of Canada decided let's let's make it illegal. Um, you know, if I say that I'm transgendered and have particular pronouns, and somebody decides not to use them, um, even if that's been the language convention for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and this is how we speak. Now we have to change the way we speak to accommodate these people's feelings. And uh, Jordan Peterson had trouble with that. Um, he basically said that that it's a political tool to use language to control people's um, thoughts and to take away their their rights and their and their power to to put into shadow, let's say, the the fact that the people. Uh, control the government and not the op- not the other way around so it's kind of a libertarian thought but he just said hey I, you know it's it's inappropriate for the government to pass a law that controls people's speech it's inappropriate uh now in in the united states we we don't disagree we completely understand for the most part freedom of speech has been a very important part of our government part of our culture um since since you know before before 1776 since since we were colonies you know like this is a tradition that has made us you know a great country and a wealthy country and and a happy country all things considered um and uh, in canada they were willing to throw that right under the bus and um jordan peterson wasn't having it and you know it's funny is it's not like he it's not like he got up on a soap soapbox and he like you know uh waved his finger at at the government of Canada or at the universities, he he didn't do that exactly. He did make a YouTube video about it, so I think that was probably the where he where he messed up. Um, but yeah, he, he basically Jordan Peterson studied uh, psychology while he was doing that. He was really interested in all of the terrible things that happened in the 20th century. You know the uh, the World Wars. You know the um, the Holocaust. Uh, the rise of you know, socialism and um, fascism and, uh, you know, that sort of thing. So he's super interested in that for, for the reason, from a psychologist's perspective, for the, the reason is that he wanted to understand how it's possible for people to do such terrible things. And more importantly, how those things can happen without reasonable good people not standing up and, and pushing back against it, just allowing it to happen, like what happened with the with the Holocaust, for instance, or you know, when before the, before um, the Second World War broke out, when Germany just kept taking over country after country after country, and the rest of the European powers just said, "Okay, go ahead." Um, and then by the time they, but by the time they just decided enough was enough, it was too late. Germany had 
you know, uh, all the German speaking countries around it, plus Poland under its under its thumb. And now it was a big effing problem. And, you know, it can only be solved through terrible war and death. So anyway, this is the stuff that's been occupying Jordan's mind that got him interested in psychology to begin with. And it's the reason why he took a stand on Bill C-16 saying that you shouldn't control people's free speech um, and that and that certainly it's not the government's role to do that. Um, now, in this world that we live in today with everybody being censored and deplatformed and all that sort of thing, it, you can see it's trickling into our mainstream culture, even in the United States, even, this, even in this great country that's founded on freedom of speech, even here. So he had a reason to be, uh, to be worried about it. But from there, you know, from listening to that Joe Rogan episode with Jordan, I was like, okay, this guy's super interesting. I want to give him, check him out, go over to his podcast and listen to what's going on. And the, the rest is history. I mean, everything this guy was bringing up was either thoughts that I had had and didn't know how to, how to put into words or thoughts that complemented um, my own suspicions. And I just thought, Jesus, this guy knows a thing or two, and I've got a lot to learn from him. And so that's what I, that's what I started doing. Uh, reading the books, Maps of Meaning, and um, 12 Rules for Life, and 12 More Rules for Life. Those are his two other books. And then the, and then the podcast, basically. Um, he had uh, a bunch of influences um, on him. Uh, the philosopher Nietzsche would being one of them. Dostoevsky in Russia, the, the author in Russia. Carl Jung, who we've talked a lot about. Um, also, Jean Piaget and a guy named Ian Sokolov. Uh, Russian scientists that we talked about before. We've talked about all of these people before. But these are big influences on Jordan Peterson and his thinking. Uh, a lot of those thinkers are philosophers, you know, psychologists, and um, uh, people that studied, you know, human de- development, like how, how kids' brains develop, how their personality changes, that kind of thing. And Jordan got into personality tests and that, that sort of thing as well. Um, so that's basically pretty good intro into the guy um, without a lot of substance. I will tell you that the book, you know, it's an academic book. Jordan Peterson did not write Maps of Meaning for regular people. Um, so if you read it, you'll notice it's written in a way that's not all that easy to read. It's not the worst one by a long shot in terms of that. But uh, but you'll, you'll see what I mean if you go to read it. It's written in an a- academic way. So it's a little wordy in some in some places, and there's language there that's not common, like psychological language. So to give you an idea, Jordan uses the word affect, affect with an A, not an E, not effect, affect. What does that mean? Well, that's one of those things that you're supposed to have memorized when you were a kid, the difference between affect and effect. But affect is a word that we can use um, synonymously with emotion. So affect is emotion. Another word he uses is valence. Valence. That means value in the in the world of Jordan Peterson. So affect is emotion. Valence is value. It, he might use the word affective valence, which just means emotional value. So, so just, just try to remember that. Affect means emotion. Valence means value. And then, of course, the book's called Maps of Meaning. So you might wonder, what does he mean by meaning? And that's kind of the point of the book um, in the beginning, trying to pin that down. What, what the heck does that mean? But he says it means implication for action or implication for behavior or maybe you you could use the word motivation. So something's meaning is what its existence means for my behavior. So, for instance, if I encounter a cup sitting on a table, uh, that cup is something that I that has a meaning. The implication for my behavior is that I can put things in it 
that I can maybe drink from it, that I can reach out and grab a hold of it with my hand and lift it up off the table, that these are all possibilities with the cup that are maybe implicit in that idea of a cup. So that's the meaning of the cup. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't matter what its characteristics are. It's what, what can it be used for? So what, what is it that I can do with it? What is it that it can do with me? It has some implication for my behavior. That's what a meaning is, okay? You may not disagree with that entirely right now, uh, especially if you hadn't considered that question, what is meaning very much? But give us some time. We'll get through this. I'll make it more clear. All right, so Jordan Peterson gets a lot of flack um, f- from the mainstream media. And you'll hear people say that he's, well, just like they say about uh, anybody that's not bowing down to the, to the um, you know, corporate overlords and mainstream media messaging. Anybody who disagrees with, you know, any ideas that, um, that the media is pushing, let's say. They call him a racist and they call him a Nazi and they call him, you know, all sorts of things like that. Um, and it's all complete bullshit. And anybody who's listened to any any amount of his speaking or read anything that he's that he's written, uh, that's p- perfectly obvious. And anybody who says he's a Nazi is a fucking idiot. In any case, uh, I want to talk a little bit because all the hate that you see coming against Jordan Peterson comes from the left, and that's strange. And it's strange to him, at least it was in the beginning, because Jordan was a socialist when he was a. A, a kid when he was in college not not only was he a socialist like a card carrying socialist but he was politically active and had and had ambitions to maybe go into politics and he was very progressive you know very progressive uh, he wanted to make the world better uh, he wanted to protect the disenfranchised he wanted to uh, do all the things that progressive uh, you know traditional liberal people want to do um, when he was in college, he, he, like I said, he got involved in, in uh, the political groups in the university. And I have a quote, a couple of quotes that I want to read to you about this, uh, his experience with socialism and uh, the left. So he was gung-ho about it, um, an ideological young man like many people um, at that age. And uh, this is what he says. He says, I hoped to emulate the socialist leaders. The left had a long and honorable history in Canada and attracted some truly competent and caring people. However, I could not generate much respect for the numerous low-level party activists I encountered at the meetings. They seemed to live to complain. They had no career, frequently, no family, no completed education, nothing but ideology. They were peevish, irritable, and little, in every sense of the word. Okay, well, if you've had uh, any sort of interaction with college-aged political activists, you can understand exactly what he's going for there. Um, you know, you can you can picture the college kid that doesn't have any life experience whatsoever, who has been introduced to these powerful ideas like, you know, governmental utopia of one form or another. For the first time, they 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 have this idea that maybe. Maybe there's something perfect that can be created or something better that can be created that they might be uh, involved in helping that process along. And wouldn't that be great? And some of that stuff is um, ego driven, too. It's like, I want to be involved in the revolution. I want to be involved. You know, it's a very uh, selfish sort of thing. Um, and, and so those those kids um, have a lot of things to say. Um, about these big ideas and then you question them or push back on them 
to any significant degree, and 99% of those kids have no answer for you. The moment you the moment you throw a wrench in their uh, their ideology, let's say, they have they they have nothing to um, you know to, to remedy that situation. So you know if, I would encourage you to watch um, if you go on YouTube and you search for uh, I wish Kyle was here now. Um, change my mind. Just go on there, type in change my mind. You'll see you know many 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 interactions with these college kids talking to somebody who knows just a little bit a little bit more about politics and the state of history in the world, and you ask them any questions contrary to what they think socialism or communism utopia is going to going to be uh, you know bring to the world, um, you know they've got they've got no defense for it. This is what he saw, and so he saw these people as peevish, irritable, little. You know that's what he that's what he called them. These are people that are, that are sitting there complaining about how terrible the world is. Um, you know they're they're putting themselves in this echo chamber where they're all just jerking each other off. They're all talking about, how, you know, they all agree on this socialist stuff and they're just bouncing the same ideas off of one another and feeling great about themselves. That this is, these are the types of low level party members that Jordan found himself among and he did not like that. So let's go on a little bit. He did mention a book by George Orwell called Road to Wigan Pier that he read that kind of blew up, blew, blew up his mind when he was in college and changed things. And he talks about Orwell here. He says, Orwell described the great flaw of socialism and the reason for its frequent failure to attract and maintain democratic power. Orwell said, essentially, that socialists did not really like the poor. They merely hated the rich. His idea struck home instantly, Jordan says. Socialist ideology served to mask resentment and hatred bred by failure. Many of the party activists I encountered were using the ideals of social justice to rationalize their pursuit of personal revenge. How convenient then that the demands of revenge and abstract justice dovetailed. It was only right to obtain recompense from those more fortunate than me. Of course, my socialist colleagues and I weren't out to hurt anyone. Quite the reverse. We were out to improve things. But we were going to start with other people. Man. Wow. So so he so he read he read this uh Road to Wigan Pier by Orwell. He gets this this message from Orwell that, you know, if you really look at socialists, uh the truth is those people don't like the poor. They don't like the poor. You're not you're not gonna find many of them at the homeless shelter, at the soup kitchen. You're not going to find them befriending, you know, people who have had a, a terrible run of life. Um, they don't want to be around those s- s- smelly, dirty people with uh, those, those failures. They, they, you know, they, they don't want to expose, expose themselves to that level of, you know, degradation. Um, you know, they, they, most of the socialists aren't getting into the trenches with the poor and the marginalized people that they pretend to uh, to want to protect and defend. Instead, they merely hate the rich. They merely hate the people that have more than they do. So they want to jump on the side of the um, so-called oppressed or marginalized people and put put ourselves in the same group as them so that we can point at those people even richer than us and say, you know, look what they've done. Look what they've taken from us, that kind of thing. They have so much and we have so little. You know, this is this is what's wrong with the world. And that and that your rank and file socialists again, they just want to put themselves in the position of the of the um, 
the oppressed. They, they just want to have an opportunity to point up at somebody else and say, shame on you. That this is what he's, this is what he's uh, describing. Um, then he talks about this having something to do with personal revenge. So the idea of these low-level socialist activists getting into politics because they want to change the world that what they're really doing is trying to get revenge on the world for their failures. And he says exactly that. He says, a socialist ideology served to mask resentment and hatred bred by failure. And so the idea here is like any young person struggling to find their way in the world and not having immediate success, you know, struggling through college, struggling through terrible you know, nine to five jobs that we all have several of before we make any success in our lives. We all have to struggle through that shit. Um, you know, the, the lack of respect that you just don't get from the world because you're young, because you don't have life experience. You want to be respected, but you haven't earned it yet. And all of that stuff becomes resentment and hatred as you become uh, college age for sure, because you're, st- you're at the precipice of becoming an adult. You know, you're like, you know, I, I should be in a position where I'm equal to the rest of these people around me that for all of my life have been grownups. And now I'm one of them. Why am I not respected? Why, why, do I, why is things not easier for me now, now that I'm a big boy? But that's not how it works, man. That's not how life works. It only gets harder. Now, you have only get stronger as well, you know, it, making the right decisions. You become more formidable than the world, or at least enough to contend with it. But that's not what these people are doing. These people are pointing up their fingers at those, at those people that they see as like a symbol of what's holding them down. And they throw all this hatred and vitriol on those people when in truth, what they're really upset about is their own failure. And take a look in the mirror. Look at yourself. Why have you not graduated college? Why have you not put the time in and the effort in to learn a trade, to learn a skill, to to suffer through that shitty job, to get over the hump? Why have you not done that? Why? You don't have faith in yourself? You're lazy? Well, that's most of us to some degree. Some people do it and some people don't. And the, and the people who don't oftentimes point at other people and blame them. And this is what Jordan Peterson saw when he was, you know, involved in politics and surrounded by socialists. And then he goes on to say that they weren't out to hurt anybody. They wanted to help people, of course, just like any, any young person trying to change the world for the better. Of course, of course, that's what you wanted to do. But he says, we were out to improve things, but we were going to start with other people. And that's that's brilliant. That's so brilliant. The idea that a young a young person in college with not a lot of life experience, let's say, and a lot of big ideas that are rolling around in their heads, they're going to change the world for the better, starting with other people. They're going to force other people to make those changes that are going to make the world better. They never once think that maybe they have to look at themselves first. And this is something Jordan Peterson talks about quite a lot. I mean, Kyle mentioned this before, but one of the things he says is to clean your room. Clean your room. You know, if you're one of those, if you're one of those people that has big, big lofty goals and you want to make the world better, start by making your own shit better. How can I trust you? How can I trust you to bring about, you know, broad social change and government, you know, reform? If you if you live in a filthy pigsty of a room and don't have any organization or discipline or structure in your life, I'm going to trust you, the college kid that doesn't turn in your homework half the time. I don't think so. So this is what he this is what he has you know has to say. You're going to start with other people, really. Uh, that's that's just the first piece of evidence that you haven't thought about this very hard. He goes on to say this. 
Anyone who was out to change the world by changing others was to be regarded with suspicion. It was not socialist ideology that posed the problem then, but ideology as such. So this is him saying that, look, it's not just socialism. I'm not picking on socialism. Uh, what I realized, and again, I'm putting myself in Jordan's shoes here, what Jordan realized is that ideology by itself is the problem. Any kind of ideology. You know, if you have an ideology, you don't have any gray area. So you're going you're gonna to stick with that, you know, party line, let's say. You're not going to allow your mind to think about anything outside of that. You're just going to vote Republican or you're going to vote Democrat. And you don't give a shit about the details, that sort of thing. That ideology is the problem because it takes away, it takes away people's ability to think and to, and to decide for themselves what's valuable because somebody else has done all the thinking for you. You know, maybe somebody thinks smarter than yourself and you're just going to rely on, rely on all those preformed answers. Again, another very, very lazy thing to do. But that's the problem with ideology. And then he says this, My confidence in socialism, that is in political utopia, vanished when I realized that the world was not merely a place of economics. And that goes right to the heart of the communist argument is if you believe that the world is nothing but a place of economics, then you can have all sorts of ideas about how uh, government and uh, the monetary system and, and all that stuff should work if you're trying to improve things. Because you can boil everything down to economics, the haves and the have-nots, the limited resources that you have to figure out how to allocate to the world. Um, but that's only one small part of the world, economics. Are you kidding me? There's so much more going on than economics. What... what what, what I'm buying and selling? Come on. All right, then he, then he mentions a Nietzsche quote here. He talks about this being a prophecy because, of course, Nietzsche wrote before the 20th century, you know, before the rise of socialism and Nazism and fascism, before the Holocaust, before any of those things happened, before communism. And uh, this is what he says, Nietzsche. He says, In the doctrine of socialism, there is hidden rather badly a will to negate life. The human beings or races that think up such a doctrine must be bungled. Indeed, I should wish that a few great experiments might prove that in a socialist society, life negates itself, cuts off its own roots. The earth is large enough and man still sufficiently unexhausted. Hence, such a practical instruction and demonstratio ad absurdum would not strike me as undesirable, even if it were gained and paid for with a tremendous expenditure of human lives. Okay, so Nietzsche had to throw some Latin in there to, to, to make me stumble, but that line was, he says, hence a practical instruction and demonstration, uh, an absurd demonstration, I'll just translate that to English, would not strike me as undesirable, even if it were gained and paid for by a tremendous expenditure of human lives. So what he's saying here is, even if a bunch of people have to die to prove to the rest of the world that socialism is, it will never work, and will, and will cannibalize its own people, that that's the, that's the necessary result of socialism. That if we have to, if we have to let it play out and a bunch of people have to die for us to learn that lesson, Nietzsche says, then, you know, that's probably good. I probably would wish for that. And to Jordan's point, that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. Millions of people died uh, in the communist revolution in China 
uh, millions of people died in the Holocaust. Um, you know, and hundreds of thousands of more in the war and all this sort of thing. So, so we did have those experiments. We did pay that lesson, you know, with the, with the price of thousands and thousands and thousands of human lives. We, we did have that come to fruition, what Nietzsche said, you know, he thought would be worthwhile. But here's the thing. We didn't learn the lesson that Nietzsche thought we would learn. We saw all of this play out. We saw all those people die. We had to deal with all that pain and rebuild. And even so, we, we didn't realize the lesson of that, that political ideology, that totalitarianism, that communism and socialism, um, that, that they will run us to the, into the ground, that they, will, that they will cannibalize its own advocates, that the people, that the communists that the socialists, that those people will die at the hands of communists and socialists, their own people. And that's what, that's what we saw in the 20th century. And yet there are still countries, many, many countries, that are both socialist and communist, that seemingly have learned nothing. All right. So you get some idea there from where Jordan Peterson's coming from. That's where, that's where some of his anti-government sentiments come from. And, uh, you know, that's many, many of the things he says in that regard is what Kyle and I like so much about him. Um, but the rest of it is less political. So I want to get into the actual meat of this stuff here. So the book Maps of Meaning, it, it starts with a quote from the Bible, which I find interesting, but I'll read it to you. It says, I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Woo, that's from Matthew. So I remember when I was talking about the, the Gnostic Gospels and the Gospel of Thomas, um, just in a couple episodes back, that uh, uh, that the Gospel of Thomas says something similar to this. It says something about the secret knowledge that, that you know, he's going to reveal in, in the Gospel. Um, you know, and that he's one of those Gnostic, so one of those secret knowledge Christians that were never accepted by the church kind of, kind of people. But a very similar statement here from Matthew, I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Well, that's a quite a statement to make, Jordan. What are you, what are you going to, uh, what are you going to deliver here, buddy? And this is what he says in opening: something we cannot see protects us from something we do not understand. The thing we cannot see is culture. The thing we do not understand is the chaos that gave rise to culture. If the structure of culture is disrupted unwittingly, chaos returns. We will do anything anything to defend ourselves against that return. So you might say that that couple of sentences, that summarizes the entire book. Something we cannot see protects us from what we don't understand. And what he's saying is that our culture, like the, the wisdom of, of our ancestors that gets passed down to us, you know, the benefit of all those lives that were lived before we were born, that stuff gets packaged up into our culture and language and gifted to us so that we don't have to start from square one, that we have this culture, we have this springboard that we can now use to navigate the world. We don't have to learn how to make fire again. Somebody already figured it out and passed it on to us. This is what I mean. And he says that that thing that we can't see, that culture, it protects us from what we do not understand. The unknown is what Jordan will say, chaos. We'll talk about that a lot as we go through these Maps of Meaning lectures. But he's saying that that thing, that chaos, that that's actually the thing that gave, that gave rise to culture. 
So chaos, the thing that we're, that we're trying to protect ourselves from, that we're using culture to protect ourselves from, that that was born from chaos. So there's some connection here. I know it's a little bit, it's not clear yet, but we'll get there. And then he says that if the structure of culture, if that, if that order that we have, um, you know, that, that everything works the way we expect it to work, that nothing unexpected happens, that we can follow our culture as a guide to navigate our lives. And if we do that, um, we should be just fine, right? Until something happens that disrupts the culture. When chaos returns, it brings us back to this primordial place where we don't know what to do. Um, again, this is something Jordan calls chaos or the unknown. Um, I might call that the unconscious even, but we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get into this even more. All right, so here Jordan says, I discovered that beliefs make the world in a very real way, that beliefs are the world in a more than a metaphysical sense. I have become convinced that the world that is belief is orderly and that there are universal moral absolutes. This is interesting. Hard to understand, but interesting. He says he discovered that beliefs make the world in a very real way. So the things that we believe somehow somehow change the way the world is to us, that we have some control over that that we don't, we don't understand very well. He says it in more than a metaphysical sense. He's like in a real way, in some real tangible way, our beliefs change the world that we experience. I think that's true. And then he does say that he's, been con- he's become convinced that the world that, that is belief, so the world, the, the internal world that we exist in in our heads, let's say, that it's orderly. It's not, it's not chaotic. It's orderly. It has some structure to it. And within that structure, he says there are universal moral absolutes. There is such thing as a right from wrong. And again, this start, it starts to sound religious, and it will throughout this, but, uh, but just pay attention because he has some interesting ways of explaining morality that I had never I had never heard before and they really blew my mind. So we'll get there. So we'll just be, be patient with me. He also says this, I learned why people wage war. So you remember he was obviously really interested in all the atrocities that happened during this 20th century. So figuring out why people wage war in, in, a, in, in an era where, you know, World War II and the Cold War created terrible anxiety for the world. He wanted to figure out why. And he, this is what he says. I learned why people wage war, why the desire to maintain, protect, and expand the domain of belief motivates even the most incomprehensible acts of group-fostered oppression and cruelty. I learned finally that the terrible aspect of life might actually be a necessary precondition for the existence of life, and that it's possible to regard that precondition as comprehensible and acceptable. So there's a lot here. So he's, again, he's talking about why people wage war, and he's talking about the domain of belief. He said that that motivates people to do terrible things, especially when it's when it's group fostered, when when there's other people around you that agree with you, uh, that push it along. That terrible oppression and cruelty can come from that. So it's the the idea here is that if a that if there's a domain of belief, if there's a narrative, like the communist narrative, let's say, um, that, that you're following, that any disruption to those beliefs, 
that will change the way you see the whole world. If you look at the whole world through the lens of power struggle and communism and something disrupts any of those beliefs, your whole world falls to pieces. Um, so this is what he bring. This is what he's bringing up. Like we will defend those beliefs to that right down to the last man, because if we don't, if our beliefs get shattered, then our kind of our whole world gets shattered, and then we have to build it back up again. And that's that's hard. Last time, last time I had to do that, I was I was a toddler. You know, nobody wants to start from scratch. Uh, and if if you find some terrible problem in your culture that kind of throws the whole thing in question that what does that what does that mean i mean disrupts your it disrupts everything you know you can't rely on anything all right so now we start getting into some philosophical stuff and it's it's definitional i mean understanding this stuff's really important so i'll try to take this slowly he says that the world is a forum for action it's a it's a forum it's a place to act uh, he says, the world as a forum for action is composed of three elements, which tend to manifest themselves in typical patterns. Unexplored territory, explored territory, and the process that mediates between them. So the explored territory, the unexplored territory, and whatever that process is that takes unexplored territory and turns it into explored territory. He said, when we think about the world as a place to act, these are the three characters in the story. Uh, he does make a distinction between the, looking at the world as a place to act and looking at the world as a place of things, a place where things exist. Like that's kind of a scientific perspective. And he's got some very critical things to say about that that I'll get to in a minute. But I'll read this out for you. So the world as a forum for action is composed of three constituent elements. First is unexplored territory. And then he, he describes this. Unexplored territory is the great mother, nature creative and destructive source and final resting place of all determinate things what does that mean so unexplored territory is the great mother it's nature mother nature the play the creative and destructive it's the place where things are born and the for the force that kills those things that were that, that nature gave birth to it's the creative and destructive force it's the source the place where things come from and the final resting place the thing where the place where things go when they're when they're done when they, when they're dead let's say so you might so this is all wrapped up in this idea of unexplored territory it's the place where i don't know what's there could be anything there could be could be a great opportunity could be a terrible thing i don't know what's there it's unexplored he calls this again the great mother nature creative and destructive the second is called explored territory he describes this as the great father culture protective and tyrannical cumulative ancestral wisdom so he makes he takes pains to say here like look when we're talking about the great mother and the great father we're really talking about principles of the feminine and the masculine we're not talking about gender or men and women this is not we're talking about mythological um stories uh abstract stories we're not talking about gender here so please put that out of your mind right away um, and in, in no way is any of this saying because the great mother is destructive that somehow she's bad and because the great father is protective that somehow he's good and this is a f penis and vagina argument. It's ridiculous. Put that out of your mind right now. What he's talking about is something very different. He's talking about understanding, uh, understanding the world as made up of these three characters and 
and existence being some kind of a narrative, being a story of some kind, and that this is how we understand the world apart from the scientific understanding, which we'll talk about, that we do kind of understand the world in two ways, in a scientific way and a mythological way. And the mythological way corresponds to the story of our lives. The way that we experience ourselves is like a story with a beginning and a middle and an end. And characters are in that story. It's a drama. It's a narrative. Okay. And then he says, third is the process that mediates between unexplored and explored territory. This is something he calls the divine son, the archetypal individual, creative exploratory word and vengeful adversary. What does that mean? So the divine son, you might, you might think of Jesus, that comes to my mind. Um, the archetypal individual, um, creative exploratory word, and that, that's something that is a reference to the Bible. The logos in the Bible is the word, um, and he's talking about that, whatever that is, being the thing that, that can go out into the unexplored territory and turn it into explored territory. And this is where it gets interesting. He says, we are adapted to this world of divine characters. He's talking about explored territory, unexplored territory, and the process that mediates them. These are divine characters in this mythological story. He says, we're adapted to this world of divine characters, much as to the objective world. The fact of this adaptation implies that the environment is in reality a forum for action as well as a place of things. So I'm going to have to explain this a little bit, but he, he, he spends a whole, a whole bunch of time in the beginning of the book talking about what, what is the world? How do we understand the world? We find ourselves in it, so how do we make sense of it? And some people say, well, it's, it's like a theater. Life in, in the, the, the cosmos is a place where we exist. Well, why? Why do we exist? Because it's a place where we can do things. We can act in the world. That's what we do. That's seemingly what, what, why we're here. Um, so that is the world as a forum for action, as a place to act. The other part is that the world is a place of things. And this is just like describing things, you know, like science does. Science takes a look at things, breaks them down, figures out how they work, what they're made of, and explains what they are. Okay, it doesn't say anything at all about what they, you know, about how they should, should act. But it does describe what they are. And that we kind of find ourselves in a world that's sort of both of those things. We, we see the way things are, we experience the way things are, but we also see the world as a place for us to act. And it's somehow both of these things. Okay, and one of those is scientific, and one of those is more religious or mythological. All right, a little bit more on this. He says, unprotected exposure to unexplored territory produces fear. Okay, so imagine if you don't have your culture to protect you, if you get plopped down in uh, like an episode of Naked and Afraid, if you get plopped down into, uh, you know, a, a foreign, you know, climate, and you're not used to the... The uh, environment—you don't know, you know, what food you, what food is there, what animals you can eat, what plants you can eat. You don't know how to make a shelter. You don't know what's what. You get dropped down into unexplored territory. How are you going to react to that? You're going to be afraid. Of course, you're going to be afraid. That's what he's saying. That that if you don't have a culture that that helps you to, uh, you know, that tells you how to exist in a place. If you don't have that, or if it's not working anymore, that uh, that you're going to be in this panic fear mode. And he goes on to say, the individual is protected from such fear as a consequence of ritual imitation of the great father. 
as a consequence of the adoption of group identity, which restricts the meaning of things and confers predictability on social interactions. All he's saying here is that the individual is protected from the fear of the unknown as long as they follow their culture, as long as they do what their father did and their grandfather did and their great-grandfather did, as long as they follow the rules that everybody has mapped and spelled out ahead of time. If they do that, they don't have to worry about the danger and the chaos. They can just navigate the world by following this pattern. And that's kind of what most of us do most of the time. Um, All right, so he says, uh, when identification with a group is made absolute, however, when everything has to be controlled, when the unknown is no longer allowed to exist, the creative exploratory process that updates the group can no longer manifest itself. This restriction of adaptive capacity dramatically increases the probability of social aggression. So this is a long, a long-winded way of him saying that um, that if if that things cannot be all culture, can't be all order, has to be a little bit of chaos in there, has to be a little bit of the unknown in there. That if that if you don't have a little bit of the unknown mixed in with the known, that you end up with a static state. You end up with something that can't change or adapt. So the world is changing out there, and our culture is staying the same in here. And after enough time goes by, the world will be different enough from our culture that we can't even use it anymore. It's just useless to us. It doesn't protect us from anything anymore. And then we have to build a new culture. How do we do that? And he said that dramatically increases the probability of social aggression. People are at each other's throats. Nobody can agree on what's valuable, what's meaningful. Uh, what do we want you know, that's, that's a picture of what's going on in, this, in the United States today. You know, the population divided right down the middle on all sorts of issues. Nobody can agree on anything. Um, and we're seeing an increase, an increase in social aggression. Absolutely. And Jordan's fear of that is, goes back to his study of what happened in uh, the Second World War and the Cold War. What happens if people are all agitated and uh, at each other's throats? That doesn't end well. All right, he says, rejection of the unknown is tantamount to identification with the devil. It's interesting here. We start getting into these religious words, but you can't take that on the surface level. You can't, you can't accept it only on the surface level when you're talking to, uh, to Jordan. Everything, is a, everything has got a symbolic understanding. So we'll, we'll see that. But he says, rejection of the unknown is tantamount to identification with the devil. The mythological counterpart and eternal adversary of the world-creating exploratory hero. So that exploratory hero, that world-creating exploratory hero, this is what he's talking about when he says the, the force that mediates between the known and the unknown. The hero is the person that goes out into the unknown and gets you know new information. Maybe it maps new territory. Maybe it finds treasure. Maybe it, there's something valuable out there that it can bring back to to you know, to its people. That the exploratory hero is the person that goes out into the dark and brings something back. Um, and if we reject if we reject the unknown, what we're saying is that there's nothing more of value out there that we can go find. And that's what he's saying is like identification with the devil. He says, such rejection and identification is a consequence of Luciferian pride. And that's something Kyle and I have called maniacal arrogance many times. He says, uh, Luciferian pride, which states, all that I know is all that is necessary to know. That that attitude, that's the downfall of mankind. 
All that I know is all that's necessary to know. That's the attitude that I hear from the mainstream media, particularly from the left. That's what's so disheartening to me. He says, this pride is total is totalitarian assumption of omniscience and something that inevitably generates a state of personal and social being indistinguishable from hell. So he's saying that this is a, a prideful omniscience. It's I am assuming I know everything. That's what omniscience means. I know everything. And he says that attitude inevitably generates hell. This hell develops because creative exploration, which is impossible without humbly acknowledging the unknown, says that constitutes the process that constructs and maintains the protective adaptive structure that gives life its meaning. Um, He's talking about that protective structure is the the known, it's our culture, Uh, that, that if we assume we know everything, that we undermine our culture. Why? Because we don't allow it to change, right? If we know everything, why do we have to change? If the world is changing out there and we still believe in here, we know everything, why do we have to change our culture to adapt to the world? We don't, right? And if we don't, that, that we find ourselves in hell. Now, he gives, he gives us an antidote here. He says, loyalty to personal interest or your own subjective meaning can serve as an antidote to the overwhelming temptation of denying anomaly. And when he says anomaly here, he's talking about the unknown again. So if we pretend that the unknown doesn't exist, if we pretend that there's not something else out there that, that's, that hasn't been discovered that might be valuable to us, um, if we deny that, that you know, this is where the problems creep in. But if, we, if we're loyal to our personal interests, we can avoid that. Interesting. So he goes on to say personal interest reveals itself at the juncture of explored and unexplored territory. And it is indicative of participation in the process that ensures continued healthy individual and social adaptation. So what does it mean here when he says that personal interest reveals itself at the juncture of explored and unexplored territory? So put yourself there, close your eyes and imagine. You're right there on the edge of what you know, staring out into what you don't know. And whatever it is that you encounter that you don't know, that interests you, whatever that is, it's very difficult to, to understand. Something Jordan might say it calls out to you. So maybe it's an idea or a place or a person that you've never encountered before. And when you do, it, it, seems, to, it seems to beckon to you. It's like, whoa, like what is that idea? That's so interesting. I need to know more about that or whatever it is. That if you're loyal to those things your personal interests, the things that pop out at you as, as worth taking a look at, that are new things. If you explore those things, that you, will, that you will be following this hero's journey, that you will be you will be following your instinct to go into the unknown and to create more known out of it. And that's the hero's story. And all you have to do to do that is to follow your interests, be loyal to your interests. So he goes on to say, loyalty to personal interest is equivalent to identification with the archetypal hero, the savior, who upholds his association with the creative word in the face of death and despite group pressure to conform. Identification with the hero serves to decrease the unbearable motivational valence of the unknown. Furthermore, provides the individual with a standpoint 
and simultaneously trans- transcends and maintains the group. So there's a lot, a lot going on here as well. But basically what I, what I said already, that those, those people who are loyal to their personal interests, who follow their interests wherever it takes them into whatever new territory it, it brings you into, that those people are the archetypal hero. They're the people that are refreshing the culture by bringing the new ideas and the new values to, into fruition. And that we, they have to do that in the face of pressure to conform. So anybody who goes outside of the the um, you know the, the the norm, anybody who goes outside of the box uh, to come up with a new technology or a new idea or whatever it is, anybody who does that is going to be is going to be made a fool by all of the people who are standing around as a part of the culture, looking at the one person doing something different and saying, "Look at this idiot." You know what is he doing? So it it, it you have to be willing uh, to to play the fool a little bit to go out into this place you've never been before and figure it out, and that while you're doing that, you're going to have people pointing fingers, laughing at you. And for a lot of people, that's enough to tell to to keep them from ever pursuing their their personal interests. As soon as somebody points and laughs and say you're an idiot, and I, I just uh, believe you, and then I then I just don't pursue my own interests anymore. I don't bring anything new into the world anymore. Um, so this is, this is what he's getting at, that, that you will have pressure to conform to the culture, but the only way to change it is to push through that and to, and to bring that valuable thing back that changes everybody else's mind that says, oh, all the people pointing and laughing at me, they were the ones that were short-sighted. They were the ones that were wrong. So, so I, I, and, and then he, at the end, he does say that, that, that new culture that's formed, it provides the individual, um, a place where he can where he can be an individual and a member of the group, and it's a cohesive thing. So, generally speaking, people are individuals. In order in order to become part of a group, we kind of have to whittle away all of our undesirable characteristics, all the things about us that the culture doesn't like, until we become you know cookie cutter enough to get along with everybody else. And that people don't love that. You know, as you grow up and that happens to you, it, it hurts, it sucks, and people don't like that. Um, and that, and that participating in changing the culture, like I just described, gives you a way of being an individual, being the person that's changing the culture uh, in the way that you, that, you, that you find valuable, but also, but also returning to, to participating in that group. That, that, that person is no longer being scoffed at and laughed at, but now maybe he's now considered a, more of a leader of the group, that kind of a thing. All right, a little bit more, guys. So I want to intro this by saying um, Jordan Peterson talks about myth and narrative a lot and the fact that we have this story about our lives that we tell ourselves um, and that everybody kind of thinks in this narrative way about the about their lives and about even history, let's say. It's something very important about a story that we kind of tell ourselves. Uh, all the information that we have, we sort of fit into a story. So I wanted to intro this bit by saying uh, a quote from Shakespeare. It goes like this. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. Thank you, Shakespeare. All right, back to JBP. All right, here's my, um, here's my intro to this segment. It says, is the world a place of things, a place of action, or both? So we talked about that a little bit. And here's Jordan's words. The world can be validly construed as a forum for action, as a place to act, as well as a place of things. 
We describe the world as a place of things using the formal methods of science. The techniques of narrative, however, myth, literature, and drama, they portray the world as a forum for action. He says the two forms of representation have been unnecessarily set at odds because they have not yet formed a clear picture of their respective domains. This is interesting. So he's saying, look, the world is a place of things, and it is a place to act. It is a a place like science describes, and it is a place like myth and religion describe. It's both types of things, and they shouldn't shouldn't be at odds. That's the first bit. Um, and he says that they should that the reason they they are at odds is because they haven't formed a clear picture of their respective domains. Like the scientific domain is something that's something that's different from the mythological one, and that they're both there and they're both necessary and they're both important. So he goes on to say that the domain of the former is the objective world. What he says, what is this is the scientific domain. It's telling you what is. And then the domain of the latter, this is the mythological domain. He says it's the world of value. It tells us what is, but it also tells us what should be. And that's a very important distinction. As powerful as the scientific way of looking at the world is, what can science tell you about, well, about what is? Quite a lot. Quite a lot. But what can science tell you about what should be? Absolutely nothing. Zero. So all of the information, all the information that there is to, to, to know, if you knew it all, would tell you nothing about what you should do. That's a different thing. It's a thing science cannot touch. So this is, this is we're going to build on this. Jordan says, the world is a forum for action, is a place of value, a place where all things have meaning. This meaning is implication for action. So we talked about that a little earlier, that things have meaning. Objects, people, experiences, things have meaning to us. And the the meaning is not something that's captured by science. It's something else. What is it? And he says that that what that meaning is, is it tells you how to behave. It tells you how to act somehow. Like we talked about the existence of a cup implies that I should pick it up or put things in it or drink from it. It has meaning implicit in it. But where does that come from? Where does that meaning come from? All right, so Jordan says, no complete world picture can be generated without the use of both modes. A world is a form for action and as a place of things, both. Those who accept the scientific perspective, who assume that it is or that it might become complete forget that there's an impassable gulf that currently divides what is from what should be. And that's great, but, you know, Jordan Peterson didn't, didn't actually come up with that little phrase. David Hume did a long time ago. So this English philosopher, uh, David Hume, he uh, famously asked, can you, can you come up with an ought from an is? This is what he said. So if you know how things are, if you know what things are, how they are in the world, does any of that knowledge tell you what you ought to do? No, it doesn't. So that's a problem. So if I follow the scientific empirical worldview and I know what everything is, like I know every, what everything is right down to the last detail, does knowing all of that tell me what I should do with my life? No, that's the point. There's something missing. 
It's not, it's not to degrade the scientific perspective at all. It's hugely powerful. It's done great things for the world. And will do, it will do even greater things. But as great as it is, it's missing something very important. All right, so this next section is called the dual nature of objects. Okay, so Jordan says there are four things we need to know. Really, Jordan, four things? Yes, four things, he says. What are they? Okay, here they are. Thing number one, what there is. That's the first thing we need to know. What is there? The second thing, what to do about what there is. The third question, is there a difference between knowing what there is and knowing what to do about what there is? And the last thing, knowing what the difference is. So it's a funny way of putting it, but, but it's fantastic nonetheless. There's four things we need, to, we need to know. What there is, what to do about what there is. Is there a difference between knowing what there is and knowing what to do, which is something we just, we just talked about with the David Hume and the ought and the is? No. There, there, there is obviously a difference between knowing what there is and knowing what to do about it. Huge difference. And then he says, and what that difference is. What is the difference between the ought and the is? Um, because that's the thing that's missing in the scientific perspective. All right, so he goes, he goes on to say, to explore something is to discover what it is. That means, most importantly, to discover its significance for motor output. And he just means behavior. Uh, talk, again, talking about meaning. It's... it's um, it's motivation for behavior. Uh, meaning tells me how to behave. So he's like, when you explore something, you discover what it is. And what that means is not so much about what it looks like or what it's made of. It's about what it means for my behavior. What does the cup's existence on the table mean for me? It means I can pick it up. I can put things in it. I can drink out of it, that kind of thing. Then he goes, he goes on to say, and only more particularly to determine its precise objective sensory or material nature and what, he, what he's pointing out here is that if I, if I see a cup on the table and I pick it up, I'm going to know instantly what it means to me and all those things I just said, that it might be something I can move, I can pick up, I can put things in, I can drink things from, whatever it might be. It means all of those things. I'm going to know that first before I see what, it's, what it looks like, what it's, how heavy it is, you know, what it's made from, how it was designed, that all of those things are secondary. All of those things that science is going to tell me about are secondary, right? So what the cup is made of means nothing to me, not nothing, but it means less to me than what I can use it for. It doesn't matter what it's made of if I'm thirsty. Do you understand what I mean? That meaning is something that happens first, and then all the science stuff is, is observed, okay? All right, this is also very cool. He says, everything is something and means something. And the distinction between them is not necessarily drawn. That's, that's brilliant. So the cup is something, and it means something. But, but for me, I don't think about those things as different, necessarily. That object is something, and it means something. And what it is and what it means are one thing to me. So we don't, we don't actually make a distinction in our minds between what things are and what they mean. So that's one of those obvious things that if nobody ever put it to you that way, you might never have thought about. But it's very true, and Jordan has a great, does a great job of doing that. He hits you with truth, and it's like truth that you fucking already know, and you just didn't know that you knew it. This is what I'm saying, that what something is and what it means to us are not exactly different things. 
Okay, he says what something signifies is more or less inextricably part of the thing. So he says what it means is just part of the thing. He says it's part of its magic. The magic is, of course, due to, to apprehension of the specific significance of the thing and not to its sensory qualities. So he's just emphasizing to you that, that the usefulness of the thing that he calls magic, the thing that, I, that happens when I look at the cup and understand what it, what it can be used for, that that magic is part of the cup. And it really has nothing to do with the things that science can tell you about the cup, what it's made from, what it weighs, how large it is, how it was designed, all that shit. He says, the automatic attribution of meaning to things is a characteristic of narrative and of myth, not of scientific thought. So the way we think about things as meaningful is not a scientific way of thinking of things, but it's still part of our day-to-day. It's unavoidable. It's, it's automatic. He says, narrative ac- accurately captures the nature of raw experience. Things are scary. People are irritating. Events are promising, and food is satisfying. Now, none of that, what he just said, all those descriptors, none of that science can tell you. Science can't tell you anything about, about a thing being scary or, or irritating or promising or satisfying. Those are all subjective things that happen in our heads, in our internal world. They're not part of the external world. They're not part of the objects. But he's saying... Yeah, that's true from a scientific perspective. But, but the way the world really is is different. Things really are scary. Scary is a thing. Irritating is a thing. Promising and satisfying are things. And they're a part of the world. They're a part of these objects. You can't separate them out. So obviously there's something missing that science is not getting. What is that? All right, he says, we become impressed or terrified despite ourselves in the presence of anyone who sufficiently embodies the values and ideals that protect us from disorder and lead us on. We don't even need the person to generate such effect. An icon will suffice. So here he's talking about how powerful uh, culture or the known uh, is in this sort of mythological way of understanding the world. He's saying that we become impressed or terrified if we find ourselves in the presence of anybody who represents our culture. So you might think of that as like a famous person, a politician, an actor. Um, you know, if you found yourself face to face with somebody like that, you can understand being terrified or, or impressed and not even being able to help it. And he says it doesn't even have to be embodied in a person that you might feel that way if you're like going to Washington, D.C. on your eighth grade field trip and you walk past the Constitution and you look at it underneath the glass and the lights that you might feel the same way, impressed or terrified in the presence of this thing that represents our culture. It doesn't even have to be a person that I'm staring at, looking at in the eyes. I can be looking down at this old piece of paper and feel the same way. That that's deeply, deeply ingrained in in, uh, in who we are as human beings to respond to, to culture and to the known. All right, he says, something, this is interesting. He says, something must have emotional impact before it will attract enough attention to be explored and mapped. And that's what I was saying earlier about your personal interest in something calling out to you. Like, there might be unexplored territory all around you, but if nothing calls out 
to you, if nothing, if nothing strikes you as interesting or worthwhile, that you're never going to go out into the unknown to turn it into known. You're not going to go into the darkness to, to figure out what's valuable there that you can bring back. That won't happen. You won't be able to be the hero. So, so he says that, um, that things have emotional impact on you first. And that has something to do again with meaning that there's, that there's more going on to emotions that we, than we generally appreciate. A lot of times we write them off as irrational. And what he's saying is that, no, our emotions are guiding us in a way that's is happening even before our, like our thoughts are guiding us, that our emotions are, are bringing us to the things that we're interested in, then we can use our attention to science the shit out of it and understand what it is. But it's that, it's that beckoning, that interest that, that, that we can't quite understand. Where does it come from? I don't, I can't choose to be interested in something. It just happens to me. So when that happens, it's emotion. It has an emotional value. Whatever that unknown thing is, it pulls you to it. And that that's important because without it, there is no hero story. There is no going into the unknown. That it has to first have emotional impact. Whew, interesting. Then he goes on to say, we need to know what things are. Not to know what they are, but to keep track of what they mean. To understand what they signify for our behavior. And if you don't think that's true, think about that a little longer. We need to know what things are. Not so that we know what they are, what they're made of and how they're put together, but so that we can keep track of what they mean. Of course, of course. Okay. Then he, then he ends this way. He says, it was the great feat of science to strip affect from perception. So I'll stop there for a second. I have to, this reminds me of a quote, maybe it was C.S. Lewis, I can't remember, but he said something similar. He said, the great feat of, the greatest feat of the devil was to convince the world that he didn't exist. So this, for some reason, this is what is pulling to my mind, so I just thought I'd share. All right, it was the great feat of science to strip affect from perception. Remember, affect is, um, is emotion. So what science did was it removed the emotional part of what of of our perceptions. So if I see if I see um, something that's interesting to me, and that emotion that I talked about, that that interest that brings me towards it, if I can remove that interest from it, I'm taking away something really important from this object, at least to me, because it's something that's drawing me in. If I take out the drawing me in part. Um, then I'm left with something dry and static, something that science can describe, but something that's not real. It's not exactly real because what's, what, what exists in the world to me is something that has emotion attached to it. And science removes that, that subjective stuff from the world. All right, so he says, um, it was the great feat of science to strip affect from perception and to allow for the description of experiences purely in terms of their apprehensible features. This is the scientific way of talking about things. However, it is the case that the affects, so the emotions, generated by experiences are real as well. Of course they're real. You experience them as more real than, than you know, the scientifically observable things. The, the, the way that something feels, the emotion and the meaning behind it, is more real to you, like we've already talked about, than, than, its, than its scientific characteristics, than its measurable characteristics. So if those things are real... We can't just write them off, and that's what science has done. And you know, this is an important this is an important thing because the whole rest of this book and the arguments that are going to be made are only are only going to sink in 
if you can remove yourself from the idea that the scientific worldview is absolute, that it tells you everything that you need to know. Um, and again, I'm not saying it's not powerful and effective. It is. It's done tremendous things for the world, knowing the scientific stuff. But it doesn't tell us the complete picture about our lives. It's missing something. All right, so changing course a little bit. This section is called Do As I Do, Not As I Say. And what I mean by this is that Jordan Jordan does a great deal talking about how when, like when he's in his psychology practice and he's talking to people, um, that he can tell very, very easily that the way people behave, the way they act, um, they oftentimes don't line up with what they say. And so what he says is that some people have beliefs that are embodied. And this is a really interesting idea. It's like if you really believe something, that you you become that belief in, in some hard to describe way, that you 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 it's it's acted out in your life. So for instance, I had the mystic experience that we've talked about over and over and over again. And when that happened, I found it very difficult from that point on for me to let responsibilities go even small things. So this is just an un, this is just an example, but it's unexpected and uh, and real. That if I like see a piece of garbage on the ground, um, I might have been able to just brush that off and 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 not picked it up. But I, but now I can't. I feel like hey, this is calling to you to pick it up. So pick it up. And you know this is just an unusual thing I'm bringing up just to say that I I don't have as much of a choice in that anymore. Because when I had this mystic experience, it convinced me of something that I wasn't convinced of before that changed my behaviors forever. And one of those behaviors is not being able to leave responsibility alone. If I see something that needs to be addressed, I feel like I have to address it if I can. And if it's, again, something as simple as picking up a piece of garbage, I feel like compelled to. It's like, I don't, the point is I'm just describing how it, a belief can become embodied, and then it, and then you act it out. Now, the opposite the opposite is important. So imagine imagine you're one of those arrogant college kids that believes something, some big idea that you've just learned, um, and you're toying around with the idea, and you like the idea. Um, let's say it's com it's communism, and then somebody asks um, somebody asks that college student, "Hey, you've got a this is, I'm just going to pull this from, this is, I'm going to give all credit to John Stossel on this example, but, um, but you ask the college kid, you say, Hey, you aced your last exam. You're doing great. Uh, your, your, your paper about communism was so well done. Um, how about this? If you, if you believe this communist stuff so much and you seem to be very enthusiastic about it, why don't you give 20 percentage points off of your paper and, and we'll divide that up between the people that did the worst on their papers so that they can get a better grade. How about that? And the college kid says, absolutely not. No way, Jose. I worked all, all, you know, all week on this. I, I researched it. I spent all the time. Those people, those people, you know, pissed off and, and, you know, didn't, didn't do what they were supposed to do. And now you want me to give them points for my, for my grade. And the college professor looks back at the kid and kind of winks at him and says, I thought you were a communist. This is what I mean, that the person didn't act out what they quote-unquote believe. If you believe what communism suggests, that, that, that the government should take from the people it can take from and give to the people who need it, that that redistribution is at the heart of communism, 
that if you wouldn't give your points to the, you know, off of your paper to the kids that did poorly, that if you wouldn't take from, again, somebody who can afford to be taken from and give it to somebody who desperately needs the points, that you, motherfucker, are not communist, even if you say you are. This is the distinction. It's super important that what Jordan is saying is that um, beliefs, when, when somebody truly believes something, that they act it out. And even if you ask them about their beliefs and they tell you something differently, you can tell what they really believe by what they do, by how they act out their beliefs, something like that. So let's talk about this. Here Jordan says, if the presuppositions of a theory have been invalidated, and he, he and this is actually a Nietzsche quote, he says, argues Nietzsche, then the theory has been invalidated. So if whatever you whatever the theory is built on is no longer true, then the whole theory goes away. It all it all collapses like a house of cards, right? And Jordan says, but in this case, he's talking about the case of the modern rational scientific world. He says the theory survives. The fundamental tenets of the Judeo-Christian moral tradition continue to govern every aspect of the actual individual behavior and basic values of the typical Westerner, even if he's atheistic and well-educated. So even those guys, the Richard Dawkins of the world, that even those guys act as if they have a Judeo-Christian moral sensibility. So what does he mean by that? He says... The principles that govern his society remain predicated on mythic notions of individual value, intrinsic right and responsibility, despite scientific evidence that causality and determinism in human motivation. And that's just a fancy way of saying that um, that we sort of know from a scientific perspective that people's decisions are not um, or they might they can be seen as not free that you don't have free will, that your decisions are all determined based upon your circumstances. So if you grew up in a poor uh, community and your, you know, your dad abused your, you and your mom and then your stepdad was physically violent after that and you know, all these bad things happened to you, if you go around and then abuse somebody else in your life, you didn't really have a chance. You, you were just conditioned to, to act out this way, so you can't really be held accountable to the same degree. That, that's the argument of determinism. And, he, and all of that about cause and effect is all very scientific, makes perfect sense. Um, and that all that stuff, you, you can believe that. Um, and, and we pretend to believe that. And yet we still put people in jail when, they, when they're violent. Why? If science proves that they didn't have a choice, why am I punishing them? And, and Jordan says, because there's these mythic notions of individual value and rights and responsibilities that comes to us from our religious traditions that we still believe and act out, even though we pretend that we don't. He says, we have become atheistic in our descriptions, but remain evidently religious. That is moral in our disposition. What we accept is true and how we act are no longer commensurate. Whew. We carry on as if our experience has meaning, but we're unable to justify this belief intellectually. So what he's saying here is that we, we carry on living our lives as if things have meaning, even though science says nothing about meaning. We pretend to be these rational, perfectly rational, you know, intellectual, um, you know, people in the Western world. And, and, you know, we have no evidence for meaning, but we still believe it. We still act it out. 
Um, so e- even if we claim that we're atheists and that and that you know there isn't there's nothing objective in the world and and all that, our actions tell a different story. They're, they're, they're t- our behaviors are tattling on us deep down. All right, so he says, we still act out the precepts of our forebearers, nonetheless, although we can no longer justify our actions. Our behavior is shaped by the same mythic rules, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not covet, that guided our ancestors for thousands of years. This means those rules are so powerful, so necessary, uh, that they maintain their existence even in the presence of theories that undermine their validity. So he's saying even though science has crept in to disprove all this mumbo-jumbo, that it still survives. He says this is a mystery. And here is another. How is it that complex and admirable ancient civilizations could have developed and flourished initially if they were predicated upon nonsense? If a culture survives and grows, does that not indicate in some profound way that, its idea, that the ideas it's based upon are valid? If myths are mere superstition, why did they work? Why were they remembered? So this is really interesting. He, he's saying, look, we, it's easy for us to turn our noses down at these ancient civilizations that had these mythological traditions that were all a bunch of fairy tales and nonsense. But the, he, he's saying, well, if they were all fairy tales and nonsense, well, how did those cultures survive long enough to become the mighty Maya or the, or the Greco-Roman, you know, uh, cultures or, you know, the Indus Valley cultures or the great cultures of Mesopotamia from, the, from you know, ancient Sumer and so, so forth. How did those cultures become so powerful and have huge populations and running water and, uh, you know, um, complex religion and language and writing? How did all that stuff happen if what these, what these cultures were based on was a bunch of make-believe stories? And even worse, why, were, why do we still remember them today? Why do I still know who Zeus is and, and Thor and Anubis and Brahma? Why? It's a good question. And obviously what he's saying without saying it is that those things worked for those great cultures and made them great because there's something profound about them, something valuable about the ideas and those myths that allowed those cultures to become what they did and that were so important that we still remember them thousands of years later. I can't argue with that. I cannot argue with that. And then he, is, he closes this by saying, is it, is it not more likely that we just do not know how it could be that traditional notions are right he means mythological notions, given their appearance of extreme irrationality. Isn't it more likely that we just don't quite understand what was valuable about these things? Maybe we shouldn't be writing them off as hokum. Maybe we should just be saying the truth, that we don't know, we haven't been able to pinpoint what the, what the value is. And Jordan's going to do a great deal to try to answer that question. So we're going to talk about the world as myth. This is the subjective world. This is We're going to put the scientific stuff aside. We're going to focus on the narrative stuff that Jordan was talking about, the other half of our experience, the part that deals with meaning. And he says this, The cosmos described by mythology was not the same place known to the practitioners of modern science. So 
in myth when they say the cosmos. They're not talking about the same thing scientists are talking about when they say cosmos. That's the, that's the first thing. He says, but that does not mean that it was not real. He says, we have not yet found God above nor the devil below because we do not yet understand where above and below might be found. And this, I think, is just awesome. I have it in bold because what, what he's saying is that um, that mythological perspective, um, you know, the, 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 the ideas of like God and the devil he's talking about that you see in these myths, that we haven't been able to place them um, because we, because we are looking for them in the, in the material world. We're looking for them, you know, in heaven. Uh, when we look up at the stars, like that's where we're going to find God. He's saying, no, you have to think, you have to think more flexibly, think more symbolically. If, if we can figure out where, where God and the devil are actually to be found, if we search in the right place, then these myths are going to start to become real and make more sense. And that place might be, might be a psychological place. It might be an internal place, something like that. All right, so Jordan says, myth is not primitive proto-science. Myth can be more accurately regarded as a description of the world as it signifies for action. So science is giving you a description of the world as, you know, as, as, as a material, you know, description. Myth is giving you a description of the world as it signifies for action. So what is the world in terms of its meaning? See, he says the mythic universe is a place to act, not a place to perceive. Myth describes things in terms of their effective valence, their emotional value, uh, or motivational significance, he says. Myth describes things in terms of their motivational significance. Okay, so I have to paraphrase here, but he, he has a long description here of, a, of an old myth, like a very ancient myth from ancient Sumeria about the creation of the world. And I, I don't want to read all of it to you, so I just summarized it. And it goes like this. In the beginning was only the goddess Namu. Namu was the primordial sea. From Namu is magically born Sky, a god called An, and Earth, a god called Ki. An and Ki are seen as a unified whole that is separated into individual being by the, their offspring that, that they create. And this is a god named Enlil. So you have to imagine the goddess Namu, the primordial sea, is all that exists in the beginning. And this is this is not not that different from the uh, the biblical story where um, the the world was uh, what is it the world was that was without um, form and void and, and so they're, he's, they're describing the same thing this primordial you know sea this this vast unconsciousness you might say and and again because water and the ocean are oftentimes symbolic for uh, the unconscious, the goddess Namu might actually just be that uh, representation of the unconscious. And from Namu is born the sky and the earth. And the sky and the earth are together. They're not separated. They're, they're one thing. But because they're together, they're, you know, you might say in union, quote unquote, in union. So they, they have sex, let's say, and create uh, a child, Enlil. And Enlil separates the two. So you can see earth and heaven are together. Their togetherness obviously creates the sexual union. They have a child. The child is what separates heaven from earth. It's the thing in the middle. So you might think about it like that. And then Jordan says, the sky and the earth of the Sumerians are not the sky and the earth of modern man. They are the great father and mother of all things. 
including the thing Enlil, who is actually a process that in some sense gave rise to them. So Enlil you might think of as that divine sun character, the, the process that mediates between the, the known and the unknown. So in this case, sky is the known and, and earth is the unknown. And Enlil is the process that mediates between them. So this is the, this is the story of the gods that are synonymous with these three psychological figures that Jordan Peterson talked about earlier. The sky, the earth, and, and Enlil are the same thing as the known and the unknown and the force that mediates between them. Uh, as Christians, we would probably say something more like Father, Son, and Holy Ghost sort of thing, where the, uh, the Holy Ghost is the, uh, is the Enlil, the Divine Son. Um, uh, the Father, of course, is the order principle and... Um, uh, and the Holy Spirit is the um, feminine or the uh, great mother or the, the chaos principle. And we'll see more of that here. Sorry, I don't want to derail. So Jordan goes on to say, We are familiar with scientific thinking and we value it highly. So we tend to presume that this is all there is to thinking. We presume that all other forms of thought are just approximations at best to this ideal scientific thought. Then he says, the empirical endeavor, which is just another way of saying science, is devoted to objective descriptions of what is. He says, however, the affect, which is the emotion that an encounter with an object generates, is not a part of what that object is exactly from the perspective of science. And therefore, it has to be eliminated from consideration. Science just gets rid of it. Anything subjective, just, just get rid of it. We can't explain it. And he says, unfortunately, this useful methodology cannot be applied to determination of value, to considerations of what should be, which means to descriptions of the future that we should construct as a consequence of our actions. Such acts of valuation necessarily constitute moral decisions. And this is really interesting because what he's saying here is that, again, this scientific perspective tells you what is but doesn't give you any idea of what you should do. And he's saying that not only what you should do, but like what future you want to bring about, you know, because your actions are doing things like changing this, the, you know, what the future will be. So you act in, in a way that will allow you to change the future. He's saying that you, in order for you to do that, that you have to value whatever this future state is that doesn't exist. You have to have a value on that. And that's something that science doesn't give you. Science doesn't value today over tomorrow or a thousand years from now over the, the, the beginning of time. It, it doesn't. It doesn't have value at all. But we do. Our actions cannot, cannot, cannot happen without that, without valuing something. And he's saying that those things, that, that process of valuation, that that's, that's a moral decision. And this is what I was getting at earlier, talking about morality in a way that you may have never thought about before. So let's get into that. So acting in the world as, as a moral act, as, as, as morality. Okay, here, here we go. Jordan says action presupposes valuation or its implicit or unconscious equivalent. He's saying that you can't act without first um, coming up with, with a value of, of, your, of your action. Is it good? Is it bad? That kind of thing. He says to act is literally to manifest preference about one set of possibilities contrasted with an infinite set of alternatives. And I have to say this again because this is so important. He says to act, anything I choose to do, is literally 
to manifest preferences about one set of possibilities. That, that means when I act, I'm trying to bring something about. I'm acting for a reason. So I'm trying to, to get something for myself, let's say, or change the world in a way that I think is better. So I act to get, to get something that's specific. One specific outcome versus infinite alternatives. You know, if I act a different way, I get a different outcome. If I, act, if I don't act at all, I get a different outcome. What I want to do is act in this very specific way, aimed at getting a very specific thing. So I, when I do that, when I, when I act, what I'm doing is saying that this, this, this very specific thing that I'm acting towards, I value more than, than, than the state I'm in right now. I'm, I'm acting so that I can get this thing I like better than what I have now. That, that is a value judgment, and it's a moral judgment. So I'll go on here to explain. If we wish to live, we must act. Acting, we value. Lacking omniscience, painfully, we make decisions in the absence of sufficient information. It is, traditionally speaking, our knowledge of good and evil, our moral sensibility, that allows us this ability. It is our mythological conventions, operating implicitly or explicitly, that guide our choices. So what he's saying here is, we don't have omniscience, we don't know everything, so, but we still have to act. And so what guides our actions? We don't have all the information, so what is it? It's not the information that's guiding our actions, we don't have it all. We only have a limited information. So what's making the decision for us? Well, I don't have perfect information, so I have to make a decision anyway. And I do that based on what I think is good or evil. And I'll put it a different way. Something that's good is something that's going to move me towards that, that set of possibilities that I want. Something that's evil is something that's going to take me a different direction. So when, I'm, when I act, I'm choosing one, one possibility out of an infinite set of, of options. And when I do that, I'm valuing that thing. I'm making a moral statement by saying it's better than what I have now. This thing that I'm pointing to for the future. That's amazing. All right, so uh, Kyle and I mentioned this before, but Jordan, Jordan, he takes some pains to talk about rationality, and I, we've talked a lot about science, and rationality is not exactly the same thing, but it goes hand in hand. And he's basically just saying things can be rational and make perfect sense to you in your mind and still be completely wrong. So here's, here's an example here that I wanted to show you. He says... The, fun, the fundamental propositions of fascism and communism were rational, logical, statable, comprehensible, and terribly wrong. It has become more or less evident, for example, that pure abstract rationality, ungrounded in tradition, appears absolutely unable to determine just what it is that should guide individual and social behavior. Some systems do not work, even though they make abstract sense. And so this is a caution, and it's a caution that's, um, it's a caution that is, you know, this is, this is Jordan's not the first person to, to talk about this. Um, uh, uh, Immanuel Kant, he, he wrote a book called The Critique of Pure Reason, where he did the same thing. He's just explaining to you that rationality and reason are super powerful, but that they're not, they're, they're not f um, infallible. So that things can make perfect sense in your head, but not work in the real world. And, and again, Jordan is pointing to fascism and communism and saying, these are great examples of that. Make perfect sense. You know, they're, they're internally consistent. You know, there's, there's strong arguments for them, and they're, and they're wrong. 
All right, he says, perhaps this is because planned, logical, and intelligible systems fail to make allowances for the irrational, transcendent, incomprehensible, and often ridiculous aspects of human character. So this is interesting. It's like something more than rationality is required to make moral decisions. One must also factor in um, the emotional value or valence, as he would say, uh, that the action might bring about. So there's more to rationality that's needed. Okay, uh, let's see. I have to paraphrase here. Um, Jordan says something like the traditional wisdom of mankind, like his its myths and rituals, uh, describe the means or the path to successful human existence and, and adaptation. And he and he goes on to say that that proper analysis of mythology is the examination, analysis, and subsequent incorporation of an edifice of meaning which contains within it hierarchical organization of experiential valence. This is what I mean. Very, very, very wordy and um, specific to like psychology. So it's, it kind of sounds almost like I'm reading another language. Uh, but in any case, what he's saying here is um, what he's saying here is that if you read mythology, that what you will see is that there is a structure of meaning uh, that mythology puts um, kind of over the world, over top of the world, and that it's hierarchical, so that there are some things that are more valuable than other things. Um, so you might say that the good would be some somewhere higher up on the hierarchy than the bad, something like that. But that there are, that there's a hierarchy of meaning and value to the world, and that people do place different levels of value on different things, and that's that's important because this idea of a hierarchy is something that uh, gets pushed back on from a power perspective from from uh, communist and liberal types today, that anything hierarchical is considered to be, you know, male dominated and part of the patriarchy and all this bullshit. What he's saying is that that any um, that human that the, that kind of moral state that human beings exist in makes it completely unavoidable to have a hierarchy of value. Um. Okay, so he goes on to say, um, meaning means implication for behavior. Like, we've, we've talked about that. Logically, therefore, myth presents information relevant to the most fundamental of moral problems. What should be, or what should be done. Now, that is a state that exists only in your mind. So when you think to yourself, uh, what should be? Like, what do I want the future to be? If I, if I could have it any way I want, what's a perfect future look like? What should be? that that is something that exists in your imagination. That's something that exists in consciousness. I think that's interesting. And then that's something, that's something that you work to bring about, that your actions will work to bring into the world. Okay, so Jordan says that um, the question about what should be basically, basically gets broken down into three, into three other questions. So what is, so it's like, what, what is the meaning or the significance of what is, of, of my current state of experience? What should be? And he's like, you know, what's the desirable, more desirable end that I want to replace this current state with? The future is going to be better than the, than the present. And I, what does that look like? And then how should we act, which is, which is to transform the present into that desired future. So this is kind of how he lays it out. Again, that's something that makes perfect sense. Um, but again, people don't people don't take the time to to put it that way. So hearing it maybe sounds strange, but makes perfect sense when you read it. He says, "This imagined future constitutes a vision of perfection, so to speak, 
generated in light of all current knowledge, to which experience are continually compared. This vision of perfection is the promised land, mythologically speaking, conceptualized as a spiritual domain or a psychological state, a political utopia or both. Uh, we answer the question, what should be, by formulating an image of the desired future. So, so you do that. You, you imagine what an ideal future would look like. And to do that, you have to, you have to, you have to believe that the imagined future is better than the current state that you're in. Now, that is a value judgment. It is a moral judgment. You're saying B, point B is better than point A. That's a moral judgment. I, I've never heard anybody make the argument that way, and I think it's brilliant that the things that I, that just following my heart, you might say, that uh, the things that I desire and the things that I think might be, might be improvements to the world, that all of those thoughts constitute some ideal that is just sort of, I don't know if randomly is the right word, but it's sort of, sort of generated in this unconscious way within, you know, within my kind of internal world. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like that is tied to the idea of consciousness and, uh, you know, because that's such a focus of mine, I'm, I'm getting kind of caught up in that. Uh, but the idea here that you form this ideal world in your, in your psyche and that that has greater value than the current state you're in, um, that that is a moral judgment. You're, you're making the decision that this f hypothetical point B is better than point A. And you are the one that gets to decide that. So I don't know if that's like a moral subjectivity type of thing. Uh, there might be more there that I just haven't thought about well, but very interesting way of looking at it. All right, he says, it is our interpretation of the emotional acceptability of the present that comprises our answer to the question, uh, what is and what should be? How should we act uh, is our best attempt to bring about our ideal uh, future that's held in fantasy. Now, the mythic known, this is something that, that we could just say, uh, you know, what that means, the known, is what is. Um, the domain of the known is therefore the territory we inhabit uh, with all those who share our implicit and explicit traditions and beliefs. So the, the domain of the known is the place that we exist, the place where we exist. Uh, where everything around us goes as planned and everybody around us believes what we believe. That's known territory. He says, Myths describe the existence of this territory as the fact of culture, an unchanging aspect of the human environment. So again, um, uh, that, that, that's that order principle that exists uh, that, that, you know, we, from a kind of human perspective, we'll call culture. He says, We change our behavior when the consequences of that behavior are not what we would like but sometimes mere alteration in behavior is insufficient. We must change not only what we do, but what we think is important. The motivational significance of the present and reconsideration of the ideal future. He says, this is a radical, even revolutionary transformation, and it is a very complex process, but mythic thinking has represented the nature of such change in great and remarkable detail. So he's saying that Myth actually describes the process of where where your um, structure of order, like your culture, falls apart. You find yourself in the unknown. Um, you know how to deal with that, and, th and this is how he describes it. He says, in mythic th um, 
mythic thinking expresses itself in four classes. Uh, the first one is a current stable state. Sometimes it's paradise. Sometimes it's a tyranny. Uh, when you're reading myths, you know, maybe it's like a, a utopia, like the Garden of Eden, or maybe it's a tyranny. Maybe it's like, uh, you know, the, the uh, well, you wouldn't call it a tyranny, but maybe the um, uh, the Hebrews in the desert, you know, they weren't, they didn't have a place of their own. They were wandering the wilderness, that kind of thing. So either a great place um, or a terrible place is this is where, where the starting point is in, in a myth. And then the emergence of something anomalous or unexpected shows up, something that might be threatening and promising. So this is basically what starts the story off. Then there's a dissolution of the stable state into chaos as a consequence of the anomaly. So whatever this anomaly thing that shows up, maybe it's a, the appearance of a villain in the story or something like that, that it will shake up that stable state, uh, whether that be paradise or a tyranny, that's, that, that maybe it falls apart, becomes something chaotic, that now has to be put back together. And that's the fourth one, the regeneration of stability from the chaotic mixture uh, of previous experience and that whatever the anomalous information was. So you have what Kyle and I called a synthesis or a resynthesis, and that this is the basic outline of any of any story, of any narrative. But it's also the basic outline of all of the transformative, transformative moments of your life personally. All right, he says, the, the traditional Christian notion that man has fallen from an original state of grace into his current moral degeneration and emotionally unbearable condition, accompanied by the desire for the return to paradise, constitutes a single example of this metamyth. So he's just using Christianity to kind of illustrate to you what that story looks like for the Western world. He says, Christian morality can therefore be reasonably regarded as the plan of action whose aim is reestablishment, sometimes in the hereafter, of the kingdom of God or the ideal future. So he's saying here that the Christian, that Christian morality is giving you a path to restore um, that, that disrupted state that you were in, to, to, to get order back from the chaos, to wrestle it back, that the mythology or the Christian story, um, like, like any religious tradition, is designed to do that, to give you a path to follow or a plan of action. So when things happen to you, when you will ultimately find yourself in this story where your stable state gets disrupted, you have some new and unexpected thing that you have to resynthesize into your, into your worldview, you know, that... that um, and that could, you know, that could be so, it could be so many things. It could be getting fired from a job and having to get a new one. It could be getting divorced or moving out on your own for the first time. Um, it could be, um, you know, uh, on a larger scale, it could be, go, you know, going to war as a country and, and either winning or losing and reestablishing some, some uh, you know, identity afterwards. Anything that happens in your life that is a dramatic element as part of the story of your life is going to fall into one of these uh, or into this uh, pattern. Um, Jordan calls that a meta-myth. It's something that you see in mythology everywhere, including in the Christian story. And he says, the manner in which we act as children, for example, may be perfectly appropriate for the conditions of childhood. The processes of maturation change the conditions of existence, introducing anomaly where only certainty once stood making necessary not only a change of plans, but reconceptualization of where those plans might lead. So that might be that ideal future that you have in mind. Um, so, you know, th that makes perfect sense. You can imagine just putting yourself back in, like, puberty again, 
where childhood is starts to starts to diminish in favor of this sort of hypersexualized world that will also change, you know, at, at some point in the future. But you get introduced into this new world. It shakes everything up. It puts you in this state of chaos where this chi- this childlike world that you lived in, where everything was fun and games and unorganized and a place strictly of learning and fun. That 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 is replaced by something more serious and something something with all kinds of pitfalls, you know, broken hearts and all sorts of things that you now have to worry about that you can see what I mean, that at different times in your life, things like that happen, that shake it up and you have to resynthesize that. Sometimes that means, sometimes that means coming to a different set of terms about how you understand yourself and where you're going, your ideal future. And that that is a moral act that what you're doing there is reevaluating what's good and what's evil. All right, Jordan says, the known or our current story protects us from the unknown, from chaos. Chaos has a nature all of its own. That nature is experienced as affective valence, as emotion, at first exposure, and not as objective property, so not in a scientific way, but you, you see new things that you've never encountered before have an emotional value, uh, even if they don't have, even if you don't understand anything about their, their material properties. He says, if something unknown or unpredictable occurs, we are first surprised. That surprise is a combination of apprehension and curiosity. The appearance of something unexpected is proof that we do not know how to act. So that's a good point. I mean, you, like I said to Kyle in a previous podcast, if you popped the back off of a hard drive and I'm staring down into all the wires and the circuit boards and somebody tells me it's life or death, I have to do something technical that I'm looking down at this circuit board and I see nothing. There's no, there's no meaning. There's no implication for action. I do not know how to behave when I'm staring at this, at this mixture of wires and circuit boards. It's chaos. It's nonsense. It has no, it makes no, has no meaning to me. And he says that this is what happens. You find your, when that happens, you find yourself surprised and then curious. He says if, uh, if we're somewhere we don't know how to act, we're probably in trouble. We might learn something new, but we're still in trouble. When we're in trouble, we get scared. And he says, outside the domain of the known, panic reigns. It is for this reason that we cling to what we understand. This conservative strategy does not always work, however, because, we, because what we understand about the present is not necessarily sufficient to deal with the future. This means that we have to be able to modify what we understand, even though to do so risks our undoing. And so again, if you have a, uh, an orderly way of understanding the world, you know, like maybe one that you got from your culture and you never question it, as soon as the world changes in a way that your culture doesn't, can, can't address any longer, that, that, that can be your undoing. You have, no, you have nothing to fall back on. So you have to, you have to be able to modify the order change the culture, adapt, just like we adapt to our environments, you know, and our biology adapts with evolution, our, our psychology also has to adapt. Um, okay, so in closing here, we have created a world of myth that corresponds to the world of our subjective experience, our internal world. Myth formalizes and explains our psychological, and you might say existential condition, 
just the same as science formalizes and explains our material condition. So I want to give you a little breakdown between science and myth uh, in, in a way that might help illustrate this. Science breaks the world down into its material parts, atoms, energy, and the components of atoms. Myth breaks the world down into its psychic parts, the known, the unknown, and the force that mediates between them. Science explains the material properties of objects, what they are. Myth explains the emotional and motivational significance of objects, what they mean. Science provides a timeline from the beginning, from the beginning of matter, like, like the Big Bang, to its inevitable end in the, the heat death of the universe, which is something that we won't have to get into, but they say might, might happen um, with uh, the, the galaxies keep getting further and further apart until, until there's this end of the universe called the heat death. Anyway, it's not, not a certainty, but it gives us this timeline. Now, myth provides a narrative to tie together the meaning of our individual lives to the world we encounter. Now, science tells you nothing about how to live your life, what is the value, or, or what the future should be. Myth provides a guide for how to live, how to act, and what valuable future state to seek out. You might call that the meaning of life. Science traces the outline of our experience. Myth brilliantly colors it in. Now, ask yourself... What is of utmost importance to you personally? What things are or what they mean? To be able to describe things or to know how you should act in the world? If meaning is important to you, if you'd be lost without it, like a zombie or a robot aimlessly existing, then why are you satisfied with a strictly rational scientific explanation of the world? Why? Science can't say anything about meaning and cannot even explain what your subjective experience is. Science cannot explain consciousness. How do you quantify that? How do you measure it? Where does it even come from? You see what I mean? We only see half the world through the lens of science, and arguably not even the half we care about. This is not a criticism of science, just an admission um, of what it can do and what it can't do. For the rest, we have to look within. And for the rest of the Maps of Meaning series, we will do just that. We will look within ourselves and within the collective consciousness of our entire species, pulling from the myths, rituals, and culture that have guided our lives from the earliest times. All right, Dr. Peterson, what's next? Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work, thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.